Hello and welcome to Dan Stand. Today I have a special guest. I'm joined by former racing driver Jody Firth. Jody tells me all about his life in motorsport, uh, from his humble beginnings building a go-kart on a budget to the highs of racing Le Mans 24 hour. And he also tells me about the time he spent in prison after his career had ended. Now Jody gives me a very open and honest account of everything which I'm very grateful for. Uh, it was quite a long record so uh, I didn't really want to cut out large sections so I've decided to make it a two-parter. So this is part one and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Jody, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, thanks very much for coming on. Um, now, I know you're a team manager uh, of a race team, but I've always known you as Jody Firth, racing driver. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think uh, it's something that most people that aren't in it wouldn't have the kind of faintest idea of how to become a racing driver. Um, so I'm interested to to kind of firstly hear how you how you first got into it. Were you, was it your kind of initial passion? I know you're into other sports like football, but how did you first kind of become a racing driver? Really, from a from the the beginnings. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> so it started from a, a really early age. To be honest, my dad used to go uh, club racing, not on any particular professional level. He'd saved up his own money and bought bought a, a racing car um, that participated in club events sort of around the country, and yeah. um, that that was really from from birth for me. So I've always been around the motor racing circuit via via my dad. Um, you know, he was he was like super passionate about it. Um, you know, the time away from the track, he'd 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 be taking it quite seriously, even on such a low level. You know, so if you're going to the gym and what have you, each of these races back then, which which sounds really strange to say it now in 2023, you know, would actually have prize money attached to it. Yeah. You know, I'm lucky enough as a driver and now as a team manager, you know, to to participate in some of the biggest races around the world that still now don't have prize money. So, um, you know the particular championships that he he used to do. Um, you know, maybe add like 150 pounds as, as a prize money. But yeah, I, I remember he bought my first uh, wardrobe uh, in my bedroom with that <laughs> with that money. Yeah. So you know, for for however many years I then had that wardrobe, it was always you know a little reminder about the way my dad went about it and was passionate about it, and that's when my love for it um, grew. Right. Um, I then didn't really start uh, racing by the, the form of indoor go-karts um, you know that you would and your mates would go on a, on a Saturday and have a have a blast round um, until until it was about 11 or 12 I think right. um, I've got an elder brother who's who's 10 years older than me and um, he was given the opportunity to go to go karting before me um, and 
uh, and turned it down. So then, as I sort of came of a of a decent age to have the opportunity to go and do it, all of a sudden my brother chirped up and said he wanted to go car racing. So <laughs> it delayed my start because you know my family could only afford for one of us to go racing at that particular yeah. point in time. And um, it, <laughs> sounds, it sounds like a typical five... sounds like a typical older brother move, really. Yeah, it, I think it was. Yeah, and then it took them five years to build that car. You know, right. so it wasn't a case of just go out and buy a mini for five hundred quid and just just see if you really like it and yeah. how good are you. It was, you know, let's buy an historic Group One touring car that needed building up from a <laughs> shell and um, you, you know, building dad, the engine. Is your dad building? He's building the car. Yeah. So, um, so he was an engineer by trade. Um, yeah. He he worked in a in an engi- a large engineering company that largely built coal crushing machines. So obviously, mm. you can see where that career path ended up going. You know, sort of, you know, into the nineties. You know, he was he was unfortunately made redundant, but that that was much later than the, the time period I'm talking about now. So, yeah, as an engineer, he 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 liked that challenge of being you know to build his own or, or his family's car and all the things that you learn from reading you know the magazines as it was back then there was no real internet to, to go and research any of these or, or, or yeah. buy published books um but that was that was you know fabulous to to watch you know some of colin chapman's you know from from lotus's engineering practices were, were, were published books and to watch how they used to do it as a, as a true engineering company you know we could copy that yeah you know Making our own roll cage or making a bracket to hold something on or whatever, and you know, we, we, in in our garage, you know, that's what my dad taught us. You know, he'd, he'd get he'd buy some sheet metal or a bit of tube or whatever, and we'd make stuff um, mm. to go mm. on the car, which is why it took five years, I guess. Yeah. But <laughs> you know, I I learned loads through that process, um, and it only fueled the fire more yeah. about wanting to go racing because. You know the maths, the physics, uh, you know that are involved in in these things. You know, it was just just brilliant. I, I yeah. mean, I absolutely. You're loved spending it. spending five years helping build your brother's car, wishing you were building your own car. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that was that was probably the downside to it all. You know, you kind of like just, just hurry up and get going. And 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 the icing on the cake was he crashed it at the first event at Old Park. <laughs> <laughs> he rolled it, and it was it was largely a write off. Yeah. Um, so that's then when that's then when I I sort of um, was given the opportunity to start because you know then they were into a rebuild which my elder brother by what time was working properly he was earning his own salary he could afford to start to spend his own money on it so um, my dad and my brother had gone and done this corporate casting as I said they did have like a bit of a, a motorsport club where there was forty of them or whatever and they'd all right. go and. My dad nearly won all of them. He was he was he was really good as a driver, um, and he he sort of talked the organisers into you know at the end of the event, you know, could could I jump into a car with five or six seats behind me and three or four cushions, you know, so I could reach <laughs> the pedals uh, and have a and have a bit of a blast. And um, it was I was I was reasonably good at it. So yeah. he then took the next step of, of buying me a proper racing cart um and we started doing some club uh, karting 
um, on, on, a, on a national sort of level. Yeah. And, and that's kind of where it all starts. These are the little go-karts that everyone knows, basically, that you really yeah. have a go on. Yeah, so I'm 14 at this point, so that's mm. way later than you see, you know, Lando Norris or Max Verstappen or whatever start these days. They, you know, they're sort of six, seven years old, really, when they're starting. So 14 was very late to be yeah. starting it. Um, and uh, the car the car he bought me was, you know, a second-hand one. Um, we later found out it was actually shorter down one side than the other, and <laughs> which was a benefit of the circuit we raced at the most, if I'm being very honest. But um, <laughs> uh, so it was, it was a it was a lovely time because I'd sort of learned what how he'd gone racing and 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 now to try and do it for myself. Yeah. Um, when you start karting, you 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 have to start at a novice level. It's the license that you can just automatically sign up to. Right. Means you're a novice. And in kart racing, um, on on Sunday's race day, you have a warm-up session. You then have three heats where the club randomly selects you near the front of the grid, the middle of the grid, and the back of the grid to start those three heats. But as a novice, you must always start at the back. And um, I remember my my very first heat, um, I think there was around about 25, 30 karts in it, started pretty much near the back, and actually finished ninth. In my in my first race, so right. I was super proud of that. Really yeah, pleased. Yeah, yeah. Dad, Dad was delighted with it, and um, you know, so I didn't certainly didn't go and win any races um, outright in that in that first year. Um, I'd won my novice class quite a lot, um, but it was enough to show my dad that it was worth him continuing with me, and, mm. and we bought a slightly better car the following year for Christmas. Um, which would have stretched my mum and dad, God knows how much. Um, and and then we went, and we had some success then, in, even in that in that second year, really. Um, yeah. But I mean, it's, you know, this is dad, just just you and your dad doing it. Predominantly, yeah. Um, you know, my mum and younger brother, um, and an and older brother would would come down, you know, on the race day or even on the Saturday as a as a practice event. You know, so we'd enjoy it as a family. Yeah. Um, which I've said it many a times probably gives me my most fondest memories of motorsport the complete rawness of it the grassroots situation mm. you know just just getting the disposable barbecue out on a, on a Saturday evening and just 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 an amazing time just just spending it with your family and doing it on next to no budget yeah but being successful because when you when you watch the the F1 and everything on the on the telly and the the type of drivers that are in there, it does seem like it's a, a bit of a rich man's game, especially when you're seeing some of the drivers being the the race owners' kids and and that. So, and I think the same as some other sports, you there are barriers to get in into the sport without yeah. having the means. So yeah. to yeah, yeah. to start the way you did seems like a very grassroots way to do it. Probably yeah, yeah, for already. sure. Yeah, I mean, I hear I hear numbers these days of going and doing that type of racing in a professional level with a professional team with good engines, you know, a chassis fairly often. You know, they they can spend anything between a hundred and two hundred and fifty thousand pounds a year, you know, doing yeah. that type of racing, and that's just astronomical. You yeah. know, that's that's the cost of some people's houses. You know, that that's 
that's a lot of money to spend at even grassroots type of motorsport. Um, I don't know if this is factually true, but the last example of somebody coming up through the ranks without any money really was Johnny Herbert in the 80s. Right. That's the last real driver that, that went through there with no money and just did it purely on talent. Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately now, with motorsport, as you've just said, you know, money money talks. It can put you into the best academies, you know, where you're affiliated with Formula One team or, or a sports car team or a manufacturer of some degree. You know, but you have to buy your way into that. You have to then show success. So then you need to be with the best team. To be with the best team, you have to go testing often. Testing costs money because you're putting tyres on it, fuel on it, the labour. And it's just... It is just, it, unfortunately, it's just a rich man's sport. It's, mm. it's a very, very difficult thing to break into, you know, as a child, just just watching Formula One on the TV and thinking, I'd like to, I'd like to try and do that. It pains me to tell them it's, it's almost impossible on zero budget. And yeah. I, and I think the likes of Lewis Hamilton, Sebastian Vettel, you know, those two iconic Formula One drivers who are fundamentally trying to change the way motorsport as a whole is operating not just formula one but mm. as a whole with its diversity and, and things like that you know is it's great to see and that journey is a long one you know it's got to filter down all the way through and it takes a long time to do that i've seen changes in motorsport that us as privateer teams or whatever takes 10 years maybe to, to reach us and it's it's a shame that the sport needs a fundamental shake-up When you were karting, are you are you just doing it to try and win prize money? Are you trying to get headhunted or scouted as such um, to get the next step? Yeah, so certainly no prize money was available to the type of racing I was doing. Um, I think, yeah, I think it was more the latter. I think I was hoping somebody somewhere may see and may think, okay, well, he looks good. Let's let's take him on board. You know. Um, and in a way, that kind of happened a little bit for me, but in terms of more response, um, somebody saw that, decided to try and help me financially um, to, to go off and do racing car championships now, so leaving karting behind, mm. and you know they they would they would pay to, for that for that to happen. Um, so so that journey then starts now in 2003. So I'm now what 22. Right. So again, very late. I've spent yeah, a lot of years yeah. karting, trying to prove myself, um, and that scenario happened in 2003. So that that was a, a very high-level championship as it went at the point called Formula Renault, which was a two-liter engine, single-seater car um, on slick tires, uh, and that was a championship the likes of Lewis Hamilton um, has been through. So very, very, very uh, professional and recognised championship. So. I tried, I tried to do everything that I could to be prepared as best as I could to yeah. to do it. Yeah. And the the way motorsport works is, like I've just said, track time costs so much money. You know, so, so that by that, you can't go as testing as much as Fred down the, 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 the pit lane there, who's on a multi-million pound budget per year. Yeah. So I can't go and test. So everything that I'm 
kind of doing during that year is I'm doing for the very first time. So the first race event I turned up at, I've maybe done four test days prior, whereas some others have been and then done 30. You know, so we were always a little bit on the back foot. But um, I actually remember a little instance at the first event that was that set the tone really for the rest of the championship. And right. so it, in qualifying, <clears throat> um. So in those type of cars, you, you, you have a dashboard that's in there, and it tells you what lap time you, you've just achieved. Okay. And the only way you, you can communicate that with um, Pitbull, or they can communicate it with you, is via a Pitbull. There is no car-to-pit radio like you listen to on Formula 1 these days. So if I cross the line now, I've got to wait until I come all the way around to the next lap before they yeah. can tell me that lap time put you whatever on the grid and, that, and, that, and that's them okay. like hanging hanging a sign off the side of the pit wall isn't it yeah yeah exactly yeah. yeah so on that pit board it's got probably the time that is fastest overall my lap time and maybe how long is remaining in the session or the race or whatever it might be and i remember um i remember putting together a really really a really good lap i mean, you know, I mean like there wasn't much left on the table as far mm. as i was concerned and um across the across the the finish line and it recorded on my dashboard a one minute and six seconds point one so i think it, yeah, that that was good i remember what the previous year's yeah. best time was and I, I remember thinking oh it's actually better than last year and um as i came round the following lap on my pit board it got my time of a one minute and six point one but pole time was a one minute five point nine so it was only two tenths but actually it was one and a half tenths when because yeah. couldn't yeah. round but one and a half tenths off pole position and I thought I've nailed it I must be on the front row or if worse <laughs> I'm on the second row yeah um, and I, I didn't better the time in, in qualifying I got close to it but I didn't better it so that was my time that stood and I came into the um, into the pit lane into the Park Ferme area uh, and all the team sort of came over to me and they were applauding and cheering and I thought this is <laughs> this is brilliant and uh <laughs> I raised my visor and I said, I said, oh, how have I done it? He said, it was brilliant, Johnny. Brilliant first qualifying. So where are we? He said, P11. (laughs) (laughs) P11? He said, yeah. He said, are you not pleased with that? I said, well, I'm pleased with the time because I'm so close, but there's 11 people between me and fastest. He's like, oh, yeah, super close session. (laughs) But that set the tone then for the rest of the year. It it meant it came down to such fine margins to to achieve so i can't particularly tell you about any result that year that was you know i was on the podium or i won a race or mm. whatever um i can tell you about lots of 10th 11th 9th 13th 14th 20th you know nothing yeah, stand yeah. out but yeah. to me to, and to anyone who knows there were really really good performances you know because the time difference was so small um and that was a very difficult concept to try and explain to the sponsor, you know, that they just wanted to see the car up front all the time and yeah. thought that the group was a good driver. And um, no matter how many professionals I tried to put him in front of to explain that situation, he decided that mid-year, you know, he was, he was pulling the plug on the investment in for me. And, and okay. I only actually did half a year of that, which was disappointing. Mm. Um, but it happens all the time. You know, at the end of the day, that man's paying for you to go racing and, yeah. and I was eternally grateful for just even six races um, but what well, I learned in those six kind of, races you're kind of left back back with nothing back to square one really 
Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and it's and it's super disappointing at the time. And, mm. and you know, no matter how, how I tried to explain it, you know, that that was the decision. But I was grateful for what had happened anyway. Um, so I, re- I returned. I returned back to karting. Funnily enough, that same sponsor then, uh, a couple of le- years later, said, I've actually started a motor racing team myself, but I've gone down a different route to the single-seaters. That it, it, It's G- GTs is what the format is there. Yeah. So yeah. to put that into context for you guys, that's more think of, you know, Ferrari, um, you know, 488 or a, or a Porsche 911 or um, an Aston Martin, a McLaren, yeah, it's like the big, that was... the big souped-up sports cars you see on Gran Turismo, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know those, whether you call it GT1, GT2, GT3, or GT4, that really is just a dictation of how souped-up that car is. Then to put yeah. it in that in that context. Um, so he started a team. Um, I was at university with you at that point in time. Right. Um, and it meant that, you know, on the weekends or when we had some holidays, I could go and work in that team um, to, to, to learn a little bit more about how a team operated. Um, but then off the back of that, he, he then said, do you think you, you'd like to go back racing? I think I could provide a stepping stone maybe into my team or on the peripheral of my team, um, right. of which... I absolutely snapped his hand off and and said yes to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so he put me into the the biggest championship that the country has. Um, it's called the British GT Championship. And at that particular point in time, um, two classes that operated in that were GT3 and GT4, and I was putting in GT4. So much, much closer to a road car, but still with lots of power and slick tires sure. and things. So yeah. still, still a professional car. And um, as part of the process uh, for that year, that um, I went and did a a race that was uh, a one-make version of the car that I was going to drive in the GT Championship. It was actually a Ginetta, so locally made to me uh, here. Mm-hmm. But um, at that point in time, they were making a big push in motorsport. Um, so I was driving a Ginetta in a one-make championship. It was at Brands Hatch, and um, I, I actually qualified that car third. Wow. I was really, really pleased with myself. Very, yeah. very proud. Um, I don't, I don't think the races quite went as good as I was hoping. Don't think I had any good result where I finished there. Um, but then that stood me in good stead then for the for the rest of the British GT Championship. Mm. Um, in GT racing, you it, it's always a minimum of two two driver affair. So there's always okay. two drivers driving the same car. The minimum race time in in these is is one hour and it goes one hour three hour six hour 12 hour and 24 hour right obviously for the 12 and 24 you might you might have an additional driver with you but for these are trying to explain this i'll just talk two drivers and they refer to it as what is known as a pro-am championship so you have a professional driver and you have an amateur driver and and at my point because i wasn't terribly experienced at that point in time i was classed as the am Okay. So my professional in my car with me was actually a Ginetta factory driver, so a, a driver that Ginetta were paying to solely go motor racing to best represent their brand. Okay. So he was the fastest thing that they could lay their hands on, etc. 
a young a young kid, and he was young, called Nigel Moore. Um, and during that year, Nigel and I pretty much won every race we were in. We were super successful. Um, I don't think we were ever off the podium, and, and we won the championship by by quite a way. Um, now, because of Nigel's particular driving status that I've just described there, with his with his genetic factory um, uh, status within the the manufacturer, yeah. they had entered yeah. Le Mans 24 Hour, but with a with a a higher class of vehicle called a Le Mans prototype, okay. and he actually drove that with Nigel Mansell that year. But at, that at year, Le Mans. That, at Le Mans, yeah, oh, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. Nigel Mansell crashed it actually, knocked himself <laughs> out, but that's a different story. <laughs> um, but Nigel did really well, went and showcased exactly what sort of high caliber driver he was. Um, yeah. But that particular event clashed with one of our British GT races, so I actually did that race. Um, on my own, the championship allowed me to do it on my own. So I, I actually held, um, you know, the championship winner's status on my own, despite Nigel had obviously been my partner throughout the year. Okay. The way the point system worked, it meant I actually won that that championship on, on my own. Yeah, amazing. Um, yeah, which was it was yeah. really really good. Um, and then that then that that opened more doors then to to go off and do more things. So that the, the team that I was just telling you about, the team owner. He then said, right, okay, I'd like you to step up into our GT3 class mm. for the following year. Um, again, it was a Ginetta car, but it was a new car that Ginetta had just launched. And they had done their own development on it, but I don't think they'd, had, they'd been able to throw vast budgets at it and spend a lot of time perfecting that car. So when we actually received the car, there was quite a lot of problems with it. Um, some reliability but some out and outright performance. And as part of that process, I was given the opportunity to be almost like the lead development driver within our team, okay. trying to develop some of the things on the car, which was super interesting. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Everything yeah. that my dad had taught me, you know, right at the beginning about engineering and, and, and then off, obviously going off and, and studying that at an academic level and being in the garage, making those brackets. And, yeah. Um, so are most racing just, drivers involved or able to do that side of things, or was that quite unique for you? Yeah, that's quite unique, I think. You know, generally, when you're looking to develop a car, you want you want a driver that can drive it as fast as he can because he's pushing it to the limits. It finds mm. out all its weak points, finds out how truly fast that car is. Um, but that 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 racing driver is generally someone who's got a lot of confidence very little scare factor you know can really hang it all out um but then not normally a great deal of brain um, mm. you know, I mean, <laughs> any racing driver won't mind me saying that i, I can assure you that um and so yeah so not not all of them truly understand the vehicle dynamics of how to improve a car or how to report back to their engineer about how it feels and therefore can you make this change and it might go faster Right. You know, not every not everybody. The vast majority of them can do that, but not everybody can do that. Mm -hmm. But then talk about how to develop the car and introduce a new component or something like that. That's an even smaller um, selection of drivers. I, I would have said. I'm not saying I was the fastest driver ever, and that is not what I'm saying. But one of my skill sets was knowing how to set up or knowing what to ask for in okay. order to make the car faster. Sure. Um, 
actually came from um, from from actually a, a little series of books that my dad bought me when I was really really young. Um, yeah. And they were, they were written by an American guy called Carol Smith, and it, it, the, the book series was was called the To Win series. So I think it was mm-hmm. Tune to Win, Build to Win, and Drive to Win. <laughs> and there weren't, you know, there were a few hundred hundred pages long. Uh, but you know, as a young teenager, he's got me reading these books, and I, I, I just thought, I don't, I don't understand why he's asking. I'm, I'm interested in the Drive to Win one. Yeah, that, that sounded like that was a good book. But the Build to Win and Tune to Win, I just, but I did, I, I read them all, and I was super interested in them, super fascinated by them. You know, I talked about all the vehicle dynamics, put a lot mm. of numbers behind stuff, and uh, and what I mean, I think they gave me a really good grounding to understand when we were going karting at a grassroots level. Yeah. Um, and we, we would look at tires and see how they'd marked up about, you know, had they got enough grip? Were they at the right pressure? Were, were they at the right temperature? You know, yeah, it was just fascinating to me. And just all the things that probably bore the hell out of people absolutely mm. fueled my fire. I thought it was, it was fabulous. But he then, he then made me read a fourth book after that, and it was called Nuts, Bolts, and Fasteners. <laughs> Sounds boring. Sounds uh, amazing. Yeah, as hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, it, but again, just, just further enhanced my, my sort of engineering knowledge. It talks about, you know, <laughs> you know what nut to use in what application and, um, you know, how it spread the load right or... This bolt with this amount of plain shank on it was the best bolt to use because it wasn't in shear. Or... <laughs> and it's absolutely boring. But honestly, there's, a, there's a fetish I'm... channel for that type of thing somewhere. Yeah, I think. I think, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll search it after this podcast. Uh, yeah. I think. <laughs> but just even little small things like it, you know, he was he he got me in the, in the garage to like you know polish polish bracket surfaces of brackets. Okay. So that there was no nicks in them, or, or, or you know, so that there was no stress raises, and it was just, just little detail like that. That you know, at the time I just thought he's just got such a vast array of knowledge in it, in it and mm. just soaking it up like a sponge. But you know, then you know, you jump into a a car that a manufacturer is then trying to develop, and and you as a driver are just 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 saying all these things that feel very much second nature and they're just absolutely thinking this is brilliant blown away by it yeah um, yeah yeah it's just small small things you know like the, 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 the dive planes well we call them dive planes but they're like a, a little aerodynamic device that sort of is fitted to the front of the car very similar to a front wing that you will see on a formula one car but smaller okay. sure. attached to the car um you know and that's there to to basically deflect uh, up and over the car, which is pushing then the car into the ground, creating more grip. Ultimately, you can go faster. But mm. you know, we'd figured out like that they weren't they were too flimsy and under extreme load. You know, they were they were deflecting, and so we strengthened them, and all of a sudden we went faster. But now we need more grip at the rear because the front's got too much. You know, it would just be getting lap time, and it'd just be it'd be brilliant. It'd be a really good development drive. Right. Um, we developed some paddle shift system for it because it was still on a sequential stick shift which you know the Porsche that we were racing against and and the Aston Martin and stuff had all gone to paddle shift because it's it's worth like eight tenths of of a second a lap Mm. and when I've just told you about that Formula Renault instance where one and a half tenths covered 11 cars you can see how much eight tenths then would would make a difference to you 
Yeah, so we we developed all that ourselves. So so when we eventually got to race that car, um, it was really really good, really fast, but still fragile, you know. And remember leading races at Nurburgring uh, when the power steering failed, uh, leading a race at Silverstone when the brakes actually failed. You know, right. so, you know, so that so then you know, damage is then caused because you know you've gone off or whatever. So it's that privateer team that I'm telling you about, you know, all of a sudden they're getting you know the, these big bills because of accident damage, and you know you just can't sustain that. You know, mm. you, you need the manufacturer to to step up to the plate to be to be to be supporting a lot of these things, um, in order for the team to continue to race because not everybody's got bottomless bits of money to just keep going at these scenarios um i guess those learnings you had from your dad at an early age were basically teaching you how to make a car fast on a budget yeah (laughs) in the very basic sense and you were able to to apply that at team level yeah 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 absolutely and and those challenges i i I just loved you know that i I enjoyed that more so than actually just getting into a car that was really sorted Mm. and, and and winning races that self that 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 enjoyment out of a collective of people taking a product making it fundamentally better and achieving with it was 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 brilliant you know that, yeah. that's it's a, it's a bit like it's a bit like you know lando norris you know at the moment you know that they've worked so hard on that car that they've just reaped benefits at silverstone you know yeah. that will have been through driver input you know about what was the weak areas where they needed more you know when they're following uh, you know, Max Verstappen in his Red Bull, you know, through this particular corner, you know, we've got no low speed mechanical grip, you know, focus your areas on that. And this is why I can't go faster. And mm. the engineers then go away and look at it. And, you know, so, so as a driver, you know, you, you are the thing that's connecting it all together. Um, yeah. You know, it's why I think Michael Schumacher was so successful, you know, because he got this amazing skill to be the glue between car on the track but amalgamating his team around him to best extract performance out of his product or go away and develop it and motivate all the team because of that you know so that when they did get back to the factory monday to friday thought well you know michael was fifth this 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 weekend and he's an amazing driver but let's get him on the podium you know yeah, lots of little instances, I think, like that, you know, I, I, on a very small scale, I was, I kind of felt that, you know, that yeah. was fundamentally helping something. You know, there were other teams running that type of car, so then what we'd found then filtered on down to them as well, and then you watch them be a little bit more successful, and it's it's a nice, a nice thing to, to see. From this point of British GT, your racing how many how many years were were you in british gt and kind of what were your all your high points and 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 maybe low points of that that time yeah we ended up missing a couple of races during that year with that car because of because of some things that we not been able to, to i remember something to do with the, with the power steering that i just told you about that it needed it needed a fundamental redesign on it and and that wasn't something we were allowed to do because of regulations it had to come through Janetta, so we were a little bit in their hands in terms of how that process went and i remember them not having it ready for one race so so we 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 missed it so it's obviously you know putting all that effort into something 
and then you hand it back to the manufacturer to, to, to have the same enthusiasm, same work rate, and then don't deliver is a bit bit of a low point because now mm. you're not going racing mm. and all that work you've done is being missed. Um, yeah, so you get you get little low points like that. But um, to answer your question about, I'm, I'm trying to think now what um, I, I've done numerous years of British GT, but but sort of in a little bit of fits and starts. Sure. I seem to recall at the end of that year, we decided that there was just too much money that needed to be spent really with that car to make it truly competitive against the, the much bigger manufacturers. Um, so I, th- I think we shelved we shelved that and we moved into sports cars, which is, which is then where the more successful part of my career then began. Okay. So having moved from GTs, the team owner decided he was going to go and do um, some sports car stuff. Mm-hmm. So sports car, if you've watched um, Le Mans recently, is is the cars at the very front of the grid. They're the sometimes closed cockpit, sometimes open cockpit, but the wheels are encased and it has big rear wing at the at the back. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that's a that's a sports true sports car, Le Mans prototype car. So this was a, a smaller scale um, with a two liter engine in it. Very very fast because it, it didn't weigh hardly anything, 500 kilos. Mm. Um, you know, with n- near enough 300 horsepower. You know, that's nearly 600 brake horsepower per ton. That's a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. So we w- we went and did a, a, a British based championship um, and a European championship, and we actually won both both that year. We were super successful. Um, we did a first year of of running a pre-existing manufacturer's car. And then in the second year, the team elected to make and build their own car. So again, called upon my skill set as a development driver to 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 make that car whatever we felt we needed to, it to be, and and whatever. And again, then to just go and win a championship in a right. European setting yeah, in our yeah, first year yeah. was a, an amazing, you know, uh, feeling. Yeah, incredible. You know, just just yeah. To, yeah, to go from the drawing board. Quite literally, to 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 taking away a big trophy at the end of that season was was, from my point of view, massively rewarding. Yeah, huge um, achievement. Yeah, huge mm. achievement. And um, the, the, I think the team even sold a couple of cars off the back of that. Then you know, which was which was good. Which was the desire from a team owner's point of view: build a product, then try and market it and sell it. Mm. Um, so that that was that was brilliant. Um, but then for me as a driver, that then pointed in the direction of I needed to step up even further to try and you know potentially achieve whatever I could achieve. So from going from those smaller sports cars, I then had an opportunity to step into the Le Mans uh, cars. Okay. Um, so the Le Mans cars have a few different championships based around them, um, as well as the, the, the jewel in the crown of the Le Mans 24 hours. So I actually did a, a, a couple of those championships. I did a, a much smaller level. Uh, well, I'm saying small level. It's, it was kind of like the third tier of, of Le Mans-based racing, mm. but which is extremely high level anyway. Um, and we did three races during that, that year because it was sort of dovetailed in the back of that European season. And we won two out of those three races, which was which was wow. brilliant. And is, that, this, is this endurance that racing like Le Mans? Yes, that was a six-hour, yeah. six, hour, six okay. hours, um, and the very first race that I did was at a track called Portimao, which it was in, at the time was a brand new track in in Portugal. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but that actually it incorporated some night driving, and that was the very first time that I've ever done any night driving. So right. that was very daunting for me, really, really daunting. You know, I remember asking, so I, so I kind of got like a little bit of a mentor driver then at that point to try and help me on that next journey. Um, a chap called Warren Hughes, um, and he was brilliant. We 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 became extremely close friends uh, over the time we ended up working together. So we, we, which which helped all that process as well. Right. Um, but I remember I remember just asking loads of questions. I remember saying, you know, at night time, is it is it is it dark or or is you know <laughs> is the you know is the tree is the circuit lighting sufficient? And yeah. he was like, it's a bit of both. You know, in some areas it's very dark. Some areas it's well lit. You know, but you'll be fine. You know, it's okay. Um, well, I, I remember, remember similar to you asking. I remember being in a car with you once, long time ago. And asking you about uh, racing single seaters, and I said because you d- you don't have windscreen wipers, and I said, nah. and it was pouring. We were on the motorway, um, and it was pouring rain. And I said you don't have windscreen wipers. And what? How do you see what you do? And you said, oh, well, it's a bit like this. You turned off the windscreen wipers, and we're, we're hurtling along the motorway, and uh, yeah, it's like you can't can't see a bloody thing. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you? Yeah. How'd you drive? And they're like, yeah, can you put them back on, please? That's quite scary. <laughs> but you're driving around fast corners like that. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, and then yeah. to, to, you're then doing that in the dark with the endurance. Yeah. Racing. Yeah, I mean, um, it's fortunate that it didn't rain during that event, but mm. nighttime in the rain is even worse. I'll come on to that in a second. But um, I remember remember being in the stint in, in, in the nighttime, um, and we've not had much practice time to be honest, before this event. So, you know, not learn all the quirkinesses of the, of the car um, in its entirety at that point in time. Um, but as a race goes on, it, 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 you know, as every car is driving around the track, you are consuming rubber. You know, that, that yeah. rubber that you, 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 you're, you're gripping to the track with, you know, gets rolled up and then eventually comes off the tyre, what we call as marbles. And it always ends up at the edge of the track, off the racing line. And over a six-hour race, obviously that can that can build up to be quite right. a bit. Um, now, because of, like I said, the car I was particularly driving was like third tier uh, speed, if you like, of the Le Mans prototypes. I've then got slower cars. I mean, in the form of GT cars. So that's a mixed class race. So sixty odd cars in it. Um, as those other two faster classes come past you, sometimes you have to move offline to, to, to allow them to pass. Now, that means you drive on those marbles, and now they're, they're now stuck to your, your tires. Right. So, you know, right. it, it may take three corners, maybe, to get that off. Okay. But what it does do is it gives you a funny sensation through the steering wheel to the point, actually, where I, I thought I'd got a puncher. Right. And because it was dark and at night and these wheels are enclosed you, you can't look at your wheel and think yeah. oh yeah it's deflated uh, you know i can report that on the radio now yeah, yeah. so that was just a one of the, the the strange scenarios with closed wheel racing in the night time i couldn't it, mm. it was just another little learning curve yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but there another little another little scenario so when it when, it, when i was karting one of the laws if you ask me about laws <laughs> in uh, in 2000, I actually I actually had a really bad crash in a in a in a racing car, um, and uh, I flipped it and actually smashed my uh, right collarbone. Right. Uh, 
which I had to have operated on, and I'd, uh, I'd have a plate in there and, a, and some screws to hold it all together. Yeah. yeah. And um, I've still got that in to this present day. Hmm. But what it what it gave me is a bit of complication because the screws are on the top part. Of your, it's right where a seatbelt wants to go. So, you know, when that's rubbing, it's, it's, it's quite sore. Now, during the 2000s, as a mandatory piece of, of equipment that um, drivers needed to wear was, was what's known as a head and neck support, or hands for short. Um, and it was brought in because of a, of a driver in NASCAR called Dale Earnhardt had a quite a bad accident and his, his seatbelt didn't do its full job, but obviously his head, his head went forward and he died because of it. Yeah. So they brought in this mandatory piece of equipment that you wear under the seatbelt and it clips to your helmet and it gives you like two inches worth of travel. So in the event of, a, of an accident, these tethers basically stop your head from traveling too far forward and protect you your neck from breaking. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in my particular instance, the, um, the, the, it wasn't enough padding, basically, to, to, to protect my collarbones. I, I used to run two pieces of, of foam. And in this race that I'm telling you about in Portimao, because it's now raised quite high, the, the seatbelt adjustment becomes less. Hmm. So when the guys had put me into the car in the pit stop and strapped me in, they didn't strap me in tight enough. And his left seatbelt kept coming off, and it gave me so much back pain during right. the during the two hour stint that I was expected to drive. Yeah, to the point where I had to be lifted into the higher car at the end of the race. Um, yeah. So, th- but but what that did for me was quite clearly showed me at that level of car with that level of grip and performance mm. and the. Um, the, the 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 length of the races I really needed to up my uh, fitness. Yeah. Um. I I kind of taken it for granted quite a lot up to that point and just thought, oh, I'm okay. It's it it's all right. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. But it, it does. And I quickly learned out that it that it did. And um, I spent some more time in the gym and stuff. And I then just found being in the car it was a lot easier. And right. And I could break later and accept higher levels of g-force and yeah it really did make a difference yeah, and, okay. I, and i was naive to that point you know, yeah really yeah. the following year i stepped up into what is then the highest level of privateer le mans racing right uh, above that is only the manufacturer stuff where you can be, be paid by a manufacturer um and i did two years of that which which it includes le mans 24 hours 24 hour. wow yeah so, um yeah I mean, uh, the, so the, fir- the first year that um, of those two years that I'm referring to, we actually went and did the, 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 the test day, but didn't do the race. So I had a very short experience of the track in particular. Not so much the event. There was still plenty of spectators and st- plenty of atmosphere surrounding it, but nothing yeah. like the race week. Um, it looks like and, such, and, a, and, such a cool event. I, I, <laughs> I saw I LeBron, I LeBron James yeah. opened it this year, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I can't... It's really difficult for me to put into words for you as to how good that is. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, as a... It's a bit like going, you know, playing football for a Sunday league team, but, but just being given the chance to play in the Champions League final. <laughs> you know? 
it's, 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 it's as much as the way I could, you know, the pinnacle of the sport. Yeah. You know, and, you, and you've been given a chance to, to get into it. But although, yes, I was successful going through the ranks, that was not wholeheartedly people just buying me, yeah. to use the, the football analogy. Um, and and therefore I'm in that I'm in that race because I'm the most talented top 120 drivers in the world. I'm not I'm not there because of that. Mm. I'm there because of different set of opportunities that that came about. Um, so yeah, you you in a way you're almost you're almost buying that opportunity. That's why I use that analogy of just going you buy a place in a in a Champions League final yeah, team. Yeah. You know, although, although um, I mean, you're gone. You're gone from just racing all sorts of kind of unknown races to just probably a, a feeling like you're a celeb celebrity driver, rubbing shoulders with the stars all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. but that is exactly it's exactly how it feels. There's there's certain events during the Le Mans week where you you go, you the, the cars are taken down into um, Le Mans Town Centre itself where uh, the organisers have set up uh, the actual scrutineering process, which is actually quite a lengthy one. Um, but the, the the public can can watch all that process, um, and that's a great opportunity for them for them to get you know signatures off drivers and things yeah. like that. And then, not shortly after that, there's then a full driver parade where you sit in like some real vintage, like 1920s vintage cars, um, you know, and you're paraded through and well, you know, like you said, you know, it just you, you you do feel like a celebrity, and mm. it's, 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 it's a bit. I'm not comfortable sometimes with stuff like that because it feels a bit <laughs> cheesy. But um, you know, as, as you know, because you're not really anybody. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. A bit, um, yeah, but you got. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you weren't you weren't your your way there. You weren't your right to be there. So you got to enjoy it. You deserve. Yeah. You deserve whatever. Yeah. You've got. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean. I, Obviously, you know, if I talk about motorsport highs, I talked about, you know, going grassroots karting with my family was mm. probably the highest, you know, but this rivals it, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, you know, mm. it's, um, you know, just silly, silly little experiences like, you know, once you get into it, so you have to do some night practice, that is mandatory, um, which I think occurs on either the Wednesday or the Thursday night. And um, I remember going out for my mandatory laps and um, I remember coming round the, my first lap and I remember coming up to the, the last chicane and looking over to the left and there's a, there's the famous Ferris wheel there and it's yeah. all neon lights and um you know these floodlights all around the track and see to, to to with Le Mans circuit itself there's a very short period of permanent road uh, permanent race track which is what's known as the Le Mans Bugatti track. Mm -hmm. uh, which is what you see MotoGP and several other championships race around. But at certain points, obviously, then you, you instead of turning right, you turn left and you head off into the public roads. Yeah. Um, the Moulsanne Strait, which is probably the, one of the most famous parts of, of the Le Mans circuit, is is a dual carriageway that you and I had drive down to drive uh -huh. to the shops. You know, and then in, in between there, each of those chicanes is a roundabout. It's, it's okay. a half of a roundabout. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so, so you get you get that massive surreal. You're driving 200 miles an hour down a dual carriageway, about to enter a roundabout with people's houses just left and right. Mm. You know, so it's just like 
it's just unbelievably surreal. Yeah. Incredible. But one of one of the other key parts of it was we uh, there's a there's a corner called Arnage, which is the far side of the circuit. It's after one of the fastest parts into the slowest part, and um, it's named after the little town that's just down there. And I remember coming into that corner. I remember turning through it and accelerating out of it, and um, was massive a massive floodlight uh, in the in the background, and it was shining into my mirrors, and it was you know a bit a bit sort of dazzling. And I remember just thinking, God, you know, like all these quirky little parts now that you've just got to deal with. Um, but then an absolutely overwhelming smell of barbecues. <laughs> and and, and I, I just remember thinking, this is cool. This is so cool. <laughs> yeah, just... You, just you take a, you know, take a just, pit stop because you're hungry. <laughs> yeah, I could have done because it smelled great. I don't know what they were cooking, but it smelled great. Um, and uh, during that year, um, another another little... This is a little fact for you, this, Dan. Um, right. So during that year, uh, in the privateer class, the LMP2 class, I was the only driver that year to clock over 200 miles an hour in, in my class. Really? Oh, wow. 200.2 miles an hour. And I can tell you exactly when it happened. Okay. <laughs> so um, we came came off the off the, um, off the the permanent track out onto the Mulsan Strait, and it's through a corner called Tet Rouge, very fast, fourth gear, 130 mm. miles an hour. You round that, and then and then you head out onto the Mulsanne Strait. And as I came through there, I could I could see just just in the distance was a Corvette, which was a which was a GT car, loud yeah. as hell. Yeah. You know, you can hear it over your own engine noise. It's it's, it's a big wow. you know growling American engine. I remember slipstreaming up to the back of him because in a straight line we were faster anyway, and I slipstreamed right up to the back of him. But just as I started getting close to him, I was maybe a car length or so away from him. Um. Coming down my right-hand side was an Audi LMP1 car, factory Audi LMP1 car. Right. And you, so in Le Mans, uh, the the prototypes have white lights, and then and with the GT cars they have yellow lights. So I knew it was a, I knew it was an LMP1 car. Yeah. I, and it couldn't time. I, I it wasn't because I timed it any better. It just circumstances came yeah, where. Yeah. Literally, as I was about to pull out of the Corvette slipstream, the Audi came past me. 10 miles an hour, 15 miles an hour faster than me anyway. So I could literally pull out from behind the Corvette and immediately go behind the Audi. Mm. You know, so I got like a double slipstream double scenario. Slipstream, yeah. yeah. And as we reached the end of the straight, it's pitch black. As we reached the end of the straight, um, obviously on our dashboard, we have different colored LEDs for the revs to let yeah. us know when we're supposed to change gear. So I was already in sick gear. Um, and, I, and I remember all the lights flashing like hell, basically saying, you're on the max revs here. <laughs> yeah. If you've got a seventh gear, change to it, would you please? <laughs> obviously, I didn't. And I remember thinking, bloody hell, that must have been fast. Yeah. Because I've never got into that scenario on any of the other laps. Um, so once I'd finished my stint and I, and I, and I got out, that every hour they'd publish the results, um, which has got like a PDF booklet with all the various sector times and stuff like that and i remember going on and looking at the top speed and i remember seeing it seeing it then mm, uh, I, knew, I knew it was quite clearly yeah, clearly yeah. that point um, well, at least you didn't crash yeah. at the end no no so, 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 so yeah so just conclude how Le Mans went then um 
I don't recall his qualifying particularly well, but that's not the important thing at Le Mans. It's, it's about getting into the race and then just doing it as trouble-free as, as, as you can. Mm. Um, we were using three drivers. So it was myself, Warren Hughes, that I referred to earlier on as my like, little mentor. Um, but we also had uh, a driver called Brendan Hartley with us, who you may know from Formula One. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now become you know World Endurance Championship with Porsche. She drives with Toyota now. Okay. Really, really top class driver. Um, he was picked up by the Red Bull program. So when he came, when I had the opportunity to drive with him there, it yeah, it got my ears pricked. That's at the mm. time he was a real up and coming star. Um, and he'd been part of that program for a while. So, as a, as a trio, we were we were really solid. Mm. Um, Warren started the race. Um, so in, at Le Mans, in that at that particular time, the holy grail was to try and achieve 14 laps on a, on a tank of fuel, not 13 laps. But by doing that extra laps with the fuel. It changed your race strategy over the 24 hours, okay. and you could fundamentally do do less stops, yeah. which saves you a heck of a lot of time. So um, it was all about fuel saving for us as drivers, but also trying to maintain lap time, um, etc. So I think a full tank of fuel at that point in time was around about 40 minutes, 45 minutes, some, something in the region of that. Yeah. Um, and I remember. During that first hour, Warren started. He did a great job. We picked up a few places. We were certainly well within the top 10, if not the top six, even at that point in time. And um, we were obviously communicating with him via radio. And 20 minutes into it, we just stopped hearing from him altogether. We were trying mm. to communicate with him. Didn't get anything back from, from him. So we, we obviously checked the equipment back at the, the truck because it operates like a repeater system and an aerial. Yeah. Um, now, because the track's so big, there are certain areas around the track where you get complete radio silence, just a dead zone. Okay. But no matter where we tried, we couldn't get hold of him. Um, anyway, when he, when he pitted for his first stop, obviously that's the first point that the, the crew's got chance to speak to him. And... Um, I remember one of the mechanics putting their head in the cockpit and at the same time, Warren was saying to him, the seat, the seat loose. Right. And when he investigated it, where it was, where the wire for the radio was, where the shell of the seat meets it, it cut through the radio wire. Oh, wow. So we'd, lo we'd lost radio. So, great, for, yeah. so from the first 20 minutes of that race, we'd lost radio altogether. Um, now, we had... A super trouble free run hmm. it just it just kept kept going and going and going and, and to the point where I think by midnight we'd which was at that point in time would have been eight hours into the race we'd got a lap lead we were we were leading and and, and we'd got a lap lead so we were yeah. in a really strong yeah. position yeah. um and uh <laughs> At each of the pit stops, the crew would give us a slip of ha a slip of paper, mm. handwritten on what what the notes were, you know, of what they wanted us to do over yeah. the next forty minutes of your stint, you know. <laughs> um, you know, it might it might have said something like, you know, we will drive a change at the next stop, try and achieve this fuel consumption level. Yeah, I, I don't know. They were just, you know, so you just get these handwritten notes instead of radio <laughs> communication. That was, that was quite that was quite cool. Um, 
But one of the things um, that the car manufacturer had uh, spoken to us about was in all their testing, um, in all their testing, uh, they said, we've highlighted a point on the left rear uh, suspension. So in the race, we'd like you to just look after the car a little bit. Don't want you to go riding over curbs. Right. Just look after that left rear corner, which from mine and Warren's point of view, we conformed to quite well. Brendan, on, a, on another note, was like a battle of hell. Mm. He was there <laughs> to purely prove to the LMP1 teams he deserved a manufacturer contract. Yeah. And he ragged yeah. the thing every time he was in it. <laughs> and obviously we couldn't communicate to him to say, but, other than the note, <laughs> stay off the bloody curves, would you? <laughs> yeah. um, and then at five in the morning, um, unfortunately that component broke uh, on his approach to the final chicane, the forge chicane, and it pitched him into a spin um, and he ended up in the gravel. Now the rules at Le Mans are the marshals can come and pick that car up, return it to the pits, and as long as the drivers remained within 10 metres of the car with his helmet on, hmm. you are still you are still in the race. Rejoin the race, okay. So you can repair it and, 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 and carry on. Now, with that being Brendan's very first endurance race, um, and obviously we had no radio communication with him, he basically just got up out of the car and left it, oh, just no. forgot. Completely oh, forgot, no. and the team had, team had briefed us all um, yeah. prior to the event starting. That they showed us stuff of you know how to get the engine cover off as a one-man person because they're bloody big yeah. them things. You know, we had a little toolkit strapped to the floor at the passenger side. Um, we even had a mobile phones. You know, if we needed to ring the team to ask, you know, it's broken down. Yeah. How can I fix it? Yeah, so there's all these things that the teams thought of that they briefed you on before the race has started. But mm. for whatever reason, Brendan just forgot and got up and, and, and left the car. So we we were out, you know, and that was at five in the morning. So we what we we'd done thirteen hours. Um, yeah. So do you still talk? Do you still talk to Brendan, or is he? Somewhere <laughs> <in there>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. It, it's, it's a it, like whenever whenever you do do these long distance races, and in particular twenty fours, you know they're, they're generally long drawn out um, weeks leading up yeah. to it. You know, there's lots of stuff to do from a driver's point of view, more to do from a team's point of view. The team team are the, the ones that are put through the endurance of it, really. Mm. And um, naturally, then when the race comes about, people are already tired, so emotions run high. You know, so when something like that happens, you, you end up being 30 blokes all just roaring and, and you're just cuddling one another. You know, so, uh, a little bit of the blame kind of drifts away a little bit. Yeah, but yeah, 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 I do. Yeah, I, I, I still speak to today. But, uh, I was very much a missed opportunity, that one. Sure. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. Sounds like it's still yeah. incredible, incredible memories, though, to have. Unbelievable. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, I mean, it just... I, I mean, I, I can vividly, you know, recall so much of it, you know, mm. now and, um, you know, I've got all the pictures from it and, and obviously it's fairly easy to go and watch it back again. And yeah, yeah, really, 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 really special event, you know, without a doubt, you know, the highlight of my driving career. You know, yeah. That is for yeah. sure.
Thanks for listening to part one. Um, we'll be back soon with part two. If you subscribe to the podcast, you will get this automatically. Um, if you want to hear more of my content, you can follow me on social media at Dan Smith Sport or on YouTube, which is Dan's World Sport. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>